Well, I'm happy to tell you that in the federal penitentiary just south of Marion, Illinois, this morning they had worship. <laughs> and it was such an honor to leave here at 7 and head down there with a team of dedicated 3ABN uh, workers. Talking about Brian Hamilton, the treasurer of this organization, his wife Diane, a volunteer here named Dan, the marshals. And they're not, they're not only doing Sabbath morning, they've got another twice a month Sabbath afternoon at another jail service. They'll be there this afternoon. They have a Thursday night every week at another jail, and then they're with the women on Monday nights at another jail. Absolutely a, a God-anointed ministry. You know, and I, I just kept thinking of it as I was there. I had the privilege of, of uh, preaching there. Jesus said, I was in prison, and you took the time. He didn't say what I was in prison for. He just said, I was in prison. That doesn't mean just visit those who are wrongfully accused. That means anybody in jail. And this is an incredible ministry. So we're having... They, so uh, Dan led in a little praise time before uh, the teaching. And all right, okay, anybody want to give a praise? And one man, one prisoner's hand went up. His name is Mark. And he said, you know, I praise God. I, I listened to 3ABN on the radio. He said, I praise God because I'm getting all this interference, interference, interference. And then the, the uh, penitentiary reconfigured all the televisions in, the, uh, in his wing at least. And he said, the interference is gone. Hallelujah. You know, you, you take 3ABN for granted where you are. You watch it. You listen to it. You get it online. But here is a prisoner in a federal penitentiary. That's a lifeline for him. So when they, when they receive an offering at this camp meeting season of the year, I hope you do something more than just a dollar bill in that uh, bucket. This ministry goes 24-7 to the entire planet, penitentiaries included. I was in prison, and you came to me through the radio. What a gift. Praise God is right. I want to pray with you and then plunge into our, our teaching this morning. Father, thank you for that call of, through Danny to turn our eyes, turn our eyes upon Jesus. May he be front and center right now. He's, who, he's whom we want to go home with. So let him be clear. Let him be seen. Hide me. Hide all of us. In the, in the shadow of his presence, we pray in his name. Amen. So I go to Google and I type in. You, you can ask Google anything you want. So I type in, can you die of a broken heart? 1.27 seconds later, it gives me, what, 500,000 different answers. I took the first one, Washington Post. I have it right here. Let me, let me read this. Can you die of a broken heart? The idea that someone can die from a broken heart has long been the subject of folklore, soap operas, and literature. Researchers have known that stress can trigger heart attacks in people prone to them, and a syndrome resembling a heart attack in otherwise healthy people after acute emotional stress has been reported in Japan, where I was born and grew up for 14 years. But, a ver but very little was known about this phenomenon in this country, and no one had any idea how it happened. Now, quoting Elon Wittstein of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, he said, when you think about people who have died of a broken heart, quote-unquote, there are probably several ways that can happen. 
His, re his research, by the way, reported it in the New England Journal of Medicine. He goes on, a broken heart can kill you and this may be one of the ways. A traumatic breakup, the death of a loved one, or even the shock of a surprise party can unleash a flood of stress hormones that can stun the heart, causing sudden life-threatening heart spasms in otherwise healthy people, researchers have reported. Now, the condition is called stress cardiomyopathy, okay? They're studying this phenomenon. The study should help improve treatment for patients who might otherwise receive drugs or other therapies that could do more harm than good. I think I'm having a heart attack, so they give you the heart attack drugs. No, you're not having a heart attack. This is a stress attack. The treatment is completely different, so it's a big deal. One more line here, uh, quoting uh, Wittstein again. Our hypothesis is that massive amounts of these stress hormones can go right to the heart and produce a stunning of the heart muscle that causes this temporary dysfunction resembling a heart attack. It doesn't kill the heart muscle like a typical heart attack, but it renders it helpless. It just stops. Amazing. We've been going to Calvary, you and I, these last few sessions together. Wednesday night we were at Thursday night, the upper room. Then, then uh, Thursday night, it's Friday. Last night it was Friday in the Gospels. This morning it's Friday. Tonight we end Sunday. Sunday. Don't miss tonight. I want to go one, one last time to the story of Calvary here. And there's one Gospel we haven't gotten to yet, and that would be the Gospel of John. So let's go to John, the Gospel of John. Open your Bible up. Can you die of a broken heart? John chapter 19. You know, you read it. If you read, the, if you read the Calvary story every single morning of your life, for, just weave it into your worship, you could do a whole lot worse, couldn't you? Remember that idea I got from Roger Moore? No, every day read the story of Calvary. So I read it in Matthew 27. But you can rotate your way through the Gospels. If you were reading John, you might begin at the beginning of chapter 19. This is John 19, verse 1. I'm in the New King James Version. Whatever translation you have, that's fine by me. Verse 1, so then Pilate, the Roman procurator, the governor, took Jesus and scourged him. It is a bloody and barbaric form of torture pre-execution. Little wooden handle with leather strips in it, bone, metal, and rock tied into the leather strands. And the executioner will wrap those strands around your body, your naked, wrap around your naked torso, and then yank it back. And it's just like a shredder. just shreds open the human torso, the chest. So Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Verse 2, And the soldiers twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Then, verse 4, Pilate went out again and he said to the crowd, to the rabble, screaming for his blood, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Hit the pause button right there. Fascinating in the Gospel of John. Just fascinating. There are seven triples, seven trios, seven trays, seven threes that are unique to the Gospel of John's account of the crucifixion. And I want to I examine every one of these. Seven threes that combine together with one compelling truth that we must go home with today. Trio number one. Three times Pilate will announce to the rabble what we just heard him 
say here in verse 4, I find no fault in him. Three times. Chapter 18, verse 38, the end of verse 38, I find no fault in him at all. Drop down to uh, verse 6. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Three times, no fault. What's John trying to tell us? Number one, the Roman judicial system found him innocent. The Jewish court, that rump court, found him guilty. And number two, Pilate, who found no fault in him, is therefore just as culpable as the clerics of Judaism for the death of Jesus. He sent an innocent man to death. I find three times no fault in him. That's trio number one. Now comes trio number two. Three titles given to Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John before the cross. You remember the first title, John chapter 1, verse 29, the, the Baptist, John the Baptist. My friend Steve Bohr took us powerfully through that Elijah uh, uh, motif. John the Baptist, John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he puts that finger up in Harry Anderson's picture and he points the other finger at Jesus and he thunders the words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's title number one. Pilate now at the end of the gospel steps in for two more titles. Verse 5, then Jesus came out. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and, he and his shredded skin. And Pilate said to them, behold the... How's it go? Behold the man. There's one more title. Verse 13, then Pilate therefore heard that saying. He brought Jesus out. He sat him down in the, in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, now what? Behold the Lamb. Behold the man. Behold the king. Now, the same language in the Greek. Three titles. The question is, it's not the title. Is he your Savior? Is he your? I'm, I'm, is he really your Savior. We're going to find out in a moment what that means if He is. All right, seven threes. Three no faults, three titles. Jesus now stands, behold the King, stripped and in that cloak, that purple cloak. I, I, I need to let D Desire of Ages just, just intervene right here. Ellen White, there. Uh, let me quote this, page 735. There, there stood the Son of God, wearing the robe of mockery and the crown of thorns, stripped to the waist, his back showing the long, cruel stripes from which the blood flowed freely, and I mean freely, when you've been shredded open. His face was stained with blood and bore the marks of exhaustion and pain, but never had it appeared more beautiful than now. There was something in that face, something in that face of beauty. Every feature expressed gentleness and resignation and the tenderest pity for his cruel foes. In his manner there was no cowardly weakness, but the strength and the dignity of long-suffering. Even the priests and rulers were convicted that he was all that he claimed to be." End quote. He is the Son of God. They knew it. They saw it and they sensed it. Three no faults. Number two, three titles. Here's trio number three. Three languages. Pick it up in verse 17. And he, that would be Jesus, bearing his cross. There's no Simon carrying the cross in John. No Simon at all. Jesus carries the cross 
all by himself. We'll see why in a moment. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a school, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Isn't that something? Pilate sits on his judgment seat at Gabbatha. God sits on his judgment seat at Golgotha, the supreme judge now. So they went to a place called in Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, verse 19, Pilate wrote a title that was put on the cross and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in how many languages? Hebrew or Aramaic, depending on your translation, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Three languages. Those were the three dominant languages in the Mediterranean world at the time of Christ. John inserts the, the little side, nobody else. John inserts this side note that King J Jesus, the King of the Jews, is in the languages of the Roman Empire. Already a huge hint that the one who dies today is the universal king. In any language, he is a king. And the Jews are ticked. And they go to, they go to Pilate. Where is this? They go to the Pilate in, in verse 21. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, come on, do not write the king of the Jews, but you ought to write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate now, a weak king. Remember that? We talked about that with Steve Bohr. A weak king. King now steals himself, cold iron in his eyes, and he says, what I have written, I have written. Adios. The hand of God and that wishy-washy Roman governor made sure, locked in in every language of the empire, the three dominant languages, he's the king. He is the king. Wow. Seven trios. Trio number four. Did you know that there are three Marys at the cross? Only John catches that. Watch this. Drop down to verse 25. Now, there stood at the cross of Jesus, his mother. What's his mother's name? Mary. Mary. So, so there stood at the cross of Jesus, his mother Mary, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and another Mary. And what's her name? Mary Magdalene. By the way, three women at the cross. Where are all these big, tough, anointed apostles? Where are they? The only one from the apostolic band is a boy, John Boy. You got John Boy and three women. John Boy and three women. Isn't it something? The women were there. Where are the guys? Hiding behind locked doors. Three Marys. Seven trays. Seven tr trios. Triples. This is, this is trio now number five. They're, they're seven. They're, the, the Christian world understands, and in fact, I've gone through and numbered them in my uh, four Gospels. The Christian world recognizes that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. Seven, they're called the seven last words of Christ. You've heard that. Of course. Three of the seven are here in John. Three words. There's another, there's another trio. Three words that Jesus speaks from the cross. 
Okay, so he's just, we, John has just identified the three Marys. Now, now here comes that, the first word from the cross in John, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and the Greek, the Greek rendition of disciple whom he loved is the, the, the disciple he kept on loving. John never identifies, him in this identifies himself in the entire gospel. He has this little cryptic line, which is really a line of, of utter humility. I'm the one that Jesus kept on loving. He could have quit, but he kept on loving. So Jesus looks down from the cross. He saw his mother. Mother's Day was what, a, a month ago? Is your mother still alive? Do you think of your mother like the Lord thought of his mother? Your mother is closer to death than you are. That woman that God used to bring you into this life deserves your gratitude, no matter how she may have treated you. Jesus looks down on his mother, and he sees the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, and he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. Can he point? No, he, he's doing this all with his head. He said, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, behold your mother. John knew exactly what he was saying. And from that hour, that young John boy took her, Mary, Mother Mary, into his own home. Desire of Ages says for the rest of his life, while she lived, she was a perpetual reminder of his Lord and Savior. Her Lord and Savior too, by the way. Yeah. Three Marys. Three words. There's the first word. Now here comes, here comes the second word, verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things now were accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And what Scripture that, would that be? That would be Psalm 22. Two nights ago, you and I lived Psalm 22, the cryptic clue to the, to the heartbreaking mental anguish on that center cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John says not a word, not a word from Psalm 22. Matthew talks about it. Mark talks about it. John, not a word. This is his only nod to that messianic psalm. He pulls the line out about Jesus' thirst. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished now and that Scripture might be fulfilled. What Scripture? The one he's praying through under his breath, remember? Praying through that prayer under his breath. Jesus now says, I thirst... Word number two in John's crucifixion account. And now, verse 29, a, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put it on a hyssop, and they rubbed it against his mouth. And when Jesus, his lips were now moistened, when Jesus had received the sour wine, here comes word number three. He said, what did he say? It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Three last words. Seven triples. Seven triples in the fourth gospel. Isn't it something that Jesus begins the fourth gospel thirsty? In John 4, a Samaritan woman comes along and he says, Woman, I need something to drink. The same gospel will now end with Jesus asking some pagan soldiers, Anybody have anything to drink? I'm thirsty. John, who accentuates not only Jesus' divinity, but upholds his humanity as well. The thirsty one. Wow. 
Trio number six, three actions from the cross. This is one you wouldn't catch unless you examined it closely. Jesus takes three actions from the cross. You remember a moment ago, John leaves out uh, Simon the Cyrenian picking up the cross. You remember that? The others all mention only John leaves out, leaves out Simon. Do you know why? Because in John, his passionate intent is to teach the truth that Jesus is in control till his very last breath. He's not a wimp. He's not the defeated foe. He is the king. In three languages, the languages of the Mediterranean, he is the king. He's the universal king. And he's in control all the way through his life. He controls the time of his death. John wants to show that Jesus is not caught by circumstances in a corner. He has chosen all of this, and he's in control. So John doesn't say a word about Simon. Jesus carries his own cross. Thank you. Number two, the second action. John shows Jesus choosing his death cry. It is finished. And then John, for the third action, shows Jesus controlling his time of death. Now, we just read it, but you didn't catch it. I want you to, I want you to note that again. We'll read uh, that death cry here in verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And now notice the line. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you and I die, it'll be like this. If Jesus doesn't come soon, we will all die. If we're conscious when we die, it will be like this. When we come to that moment of death, we could be talking to somebody. We could be in the middle of a prayer. We could be in the middle of sleep. But all of a sudden, our breath will stop and our head will drop if we're sitting up. Isn't that right? Yeah. The breath stops. Then the head drops. Did you just notice what you read? Jesus lowers his head and then says, this is my last breath. He's in control to the very end. And if he can control his life to the very end, do you suppose he could do the same for your life if you let him? Huh? Don't you suppose he can? He's the master of the universe. In every language, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he is in control. Seven trios. Seven trios in one gospel, unique to John. There's a seventh one. Only John mentions the seventh one as well. There are three woundings of Jesus. Wounding number one, we noted a moment ago when we were reading in chapter 19. Remember the scourging? Just the shredded. Okay, that's the first bloodshed. Number one. Wounding number two, when they yank his arms out. Last night we heard Luke record Jesus' prayer as they are pinning him to that cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's wounding number two, but only John has wounding number three. Read it with me, please. Let's read it right here in... Uh, let's just pick it up at verse 30 again. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore... Because it was the preparation day, what day of the week would that be? Just refresh my memory. What day of the week do we call good when it's the Passion Weekend? What's the day of the week we call good? We are absolutely convinced that Friday is Good Friday, and we're absolutely convinced that uh, Resurrection Sunday is Sunday. 
So we're going to know, we're going to find out in one split second what's the day between. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that awful Friday that we now call good, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. It was a, it was a feast Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that, that they might be taken away. The reason you break the legs, I used to think, well, they wanted to break the legs so they couldn't run away. It's not, had nothing to do with running away. Because you're dying in a barbaric form of, of strangulation, you get weaker and weaker. You're having to put all your weight on your shins to lift yourself. And when you put your weight to your legs, it produces this red-hot searing pain that shoots through your body. Hence the Latin word excruciatus, which means from out of the cross, from whence comes our word, excruciating. So in order to hasten death, what they do is they break the shins. They just shatter both legs. You don't have, you don't have the pain threshold now to even push yourself up. It's just, it's... It's, it's over. And so because you're hanging down and you can't raise yourself, you, you drown. You drown in your body fluids. You just stop. You asphyxiate. You just stop breathing. So that's what they asked. They Pilate, come on, get, get these bodies off. We've got a big hole. Can you imagine that? We are right about which day of the week is the Sabbath. But we have just crucified the Lord of the Sabbath. Boy, that's a reminder. That is a reminder of the like Sabbatarians, the likes of you and me. We can be absolutely right about the day of worship and be wrong about the Jesus of that Sabbath. You think just because you have the seventh day down pat that you have a one-way ticket to eternity? There is no Sabbath keeping that will get you into eternity. Not a single day of Sabbath keeping. It's only the Lord of the Sabbath who will get you into eternity. And if you have the day of the Lord right, but you're wrong about the Lord of the day, you are as lost as anybody else. Let us not be as foolish as the Jews and hide behind our, Sabbat our Sabbatarian orthodoxy and believe that God has to save me because I'm keeping the Sabbath. He doesn't have to save a single soul. But out of His goodness and His love for you and me, you take the Savior, you'll have salvation. Say, what, what are you saying? Dwight? Are you against the Sabbath? Give me a break. I preach in Net 98, 40 languages around the world. Don't you talk to me about what I believe. Listen to me carefully. The day won't save a single soul. The Pharisees hurried home to keep the Sabbath, and they just killed the God of this universe. Something's wrong about Sabbath keeping like that. Something is terribly wrong about getting the Sabbath right, and you kill God in the process. That just cannot be right. Cannot be. Which means you can't be saved by your Sabbath keeping. You'll be saved by your Savior trusting. And there is a difference. So they come. They say, Pilate, come on, get these bodies off. It's almost sundown. Please. Verse 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, that would be the thief, and of the other who was crucified with him, shattered those, those bones. But... Verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw mercy, he's already dead. Unusual. He's dead. He picked the time, the moment of his death, by the way. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers instead pierced his side with a spear just to make sure we're not going to bury a, a living man. And John Boy, who was there, the only eyewitness of the disciples, 
And John Boy wrote, verse 35, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done... These things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. In verse 37, and again, another Scripture says, They shall look upon him whom they pierced. Now notice verse 34. When that spear pierced the pericardial sac of the heart, what did John Boy see come spilling out of that opened chest? What came spilling out of that chest? Tell me what your Bible says. What does your Bible say? Blood and water. The third wounding shown only in the gospel, the fourth gospel. Blood and water. Isn't that amazing? John, John begins his gospel with Jesus turning the water into wine and he ends his gospel of Jesus taking a sip of wine and it's now water. Blood and water. Wine and water, sacrifice and death, all of it wrapped up in that graphic image of the chest slit open and then this clear liquid alongside the trickling, coagulating blood. I saw it. He who, he who saw these things testifies. Seven trios. One compelling truth. You said, what? Let's get to the compelling truth, please. What is the compelling truth? Well, because we are a highly convictional community, I say that with gratitude to God. In a highly convictional community like ours, where right living and right behaving are rightfully emphasized, there is the possibility, not so small, that we may live with a sense of numinous apprehension, latent uncertainty about our salvation. I have a, a, a blessed grandmother who sleeps in Jesus. She lived to be 99, almost 100. Preacher's wife, General Conference Vice President's wife, missionary wife. I used to go out and visit her in Loma Linda while pastoring at uh, Pioneer. And every now and then, Grandma would say to me, Dwight, um, you know, how, how, how do we know for sure? How do we know for sure that it's okay? The only reason I mention my grandmother is because in my short life of pastoring, I've found that it's true, the older you get, sometimes the more uncertain you become. When you're young, it's, you know, I mean, I say it's all by faith, I understand that. But when death starts becoming a, an ever-present reality, you start renegotiating life. You start rethinking, what is it that really counts? And in a highly convictional community like ours where right behaving is rightfully emphasized, you begin to wonder, I wonder if I behaved right enough long enough. Maybe, maybe this isn't quite as sure as I once thought. 
That's the community I love and that I've grown up in. You don't need to give me any lectures about it. I'm a fifth-generation Adventist and a fourth-generation preacher within this community. I know it well. I'm telling you that the older you get sometimes, the more difficult that certainty can feel. Yeah, the joy of being able to visit with Grandma and assure her that the gospel is the gospel. But I want to draw your attention to something in that little phrase, that last word of Jesus in John. It is finished. Now, I want you to listen now how the Greek actually reads. It's in the perfect tense, and it reads like this. It can be rightfully translated, it has been completed. It has been completed. Okay? Completed. It takes a past action to show that the past action still has continuing effects in the present. But the action is in the past. And it's all done back there. It would be like you getting a FedEx envelope to your house and you discover a great uncle that you never knew, never met. Well, you knew about him. You'd heard about him. But you get this FedEx envelope from a law firm that is representing your great uncle who died two or three years ago. They finally found you. He has willed his entire estate to you. $3.3 billion to you. Give me more uncles like that, I say. <laughs> he has willed his entire estate to you. They've been looking for you everywhere. It was signed, sealed, notarized, all handled. They finally found you. And they announced to you, if you want this, that $3.3 billion from back then that was ratified, you get it now. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what this tense in the Greek means. Something done long ago still is having present effect today. And why, why is it having present effect? Because a man comes along and finds out about Jesus. A woman comes along. A child comes along. A boy comes along. A teenager comes along, finds out about Jesus. And the moment that discovery is made, what was done 2,000 years ago now leaps into life again. Past action with present continuing effect. When Jesus cries out, it is finished. The word is. Just like John 3.16 declares, all we have to do is trust our benefactor, believe that the will is ratified, and whatever provision is in that will belongs to us. Now listen carefully. It is finished means that we can rest secure in Jesus' mission and work at the cross. Now hold on, hold on, hold on. What counts is not my unfinished work. What matters is His finished work. That's what counts. Not me, but Him. You see, if we, if we keep insisting, no, what counts is, is, is what I do, then we have the medieval we have the medieval notion of the universe. You remember the old medieval scholars? We're talking about religious scholars and... Uh, Scientists as well. They believed that the earth was the center of the universe. True or false? Well, that's what they believed. And that the whole universe rotated around the earth. They had an earth-centered universe. And then along comes a scientist named Galileo, and he goes, Bob, I was focused at good night. Is this true? A gentleman, excuse me, I found something out today. 
We're not the center of the universe. The sun is the center of our solar system. We go around the sun. It does not go around us. People who believe that their present action is going to determine their salvation have, don't live in a sun, S-O-N, centered universe. They have put themselves in the center of the universe and they have the S-O-N going around them. That is dead wrong. The S-O-N is in the middle. We go around Him. What He has done is what counts. What He has accomplished is what matters. Because look, come on, come on, come on. If I am the center of my universe and the sun goes around me, knowing how weak and faulty I am, what kind of assurance am I going to have when I come up to the day I die if I have to depend on how Dwight has handled his life? What kind of assurance will I have? Zero, not a nothing. I mean, I'm messed up. But if I take me out of the center of the picture and I put the sun in the center and my life now rotates, revolves, orbits around him, what kind of security do I now have? I have all the security in the universe because it's wrapped up in the one who is the center of my universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus cries out, it has been accomplished, it has been done, he is saying it really was done. It is finished means it really is finished. Finished. Or he wasn't telling the truth in his last breath. You come to me and you say, no, Dwight. <laughs> no, 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 no. I got to do something here. Well, of course you do something. You respond to the one who finished the work. And you respond in gratitude. Do you not? Of course. That's why it's no accident, by the way, that in John, only in John, he makes this big point about what is what the day that is coming on. This is the preparation day, and the day to follow the preparation day would be the, the seventh-day Sabbath, the Sabbath of creation. John inserts that right after it is finished so that we'll be instantly reminded that even as it was in creation, God did it. God did his crowning work on the sixth day, looked, at, looked it over and said, what? This is very good. Finished his work on the sixth day, then rested on the seventh. By the way, can you add to God's creation? What God finished on the sixth day of creation, can you add to it? I want to add just a little more, God. Can you? Impossible. Even as it was in creation, God's climaxing, climaxic work is done on the sixth day, then he rests, even so in salvation. His work is done on the sixth day, and then, hallelujah, he rests. And by the way, he says, you enter my rest. You go into, you rest with me. If I can't add an atom to God's creation, can I add an iota to his salvation? I cannot. That's John's point. It is finished really means it is finished. By the way, that's also why John shows the blood and the water. Because, you see, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God covers the past, covers your past, washes it clean. The blood covers the past. The water trickles right beside the blood because I keep getting dirty. I keep getting, I keep getting stained. And the water now is the present gift of the washing that goes on until Jesus comes. I'm covered in the past. I'm washed in the present. And I'm looking forward to the future. 
It's all wrapped up in Jesus. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. Apparently, it is finished really means it is finished. So, dear Grandma, dear Grandpa, dear middle-ager, boomer, dear young adult, dear teenager, what you did last night matters. But last night is past. And God has offered a sacrifice to cover that past. What you do today, it matters. And God has unleashed. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear Grandma, dear Grandma, you go ahead and die. When Jesus is ready for you to breathe your last, he'll decide. Unlike him, we won't choose when the last breath will be. He'll choose. But Grandma, when you come to your death, you can breathe that last breath of release into the nail-scarred embrace of one who promises you, I really did finish your salvation on Calvary. I finished it. Yes, I am your high priest. Yes, I minister for you now. But I finished your salvation 2,000 years ago. Girl, woman, Boy, man, rest in me. Be at peace. Because it is finished really means it is finished. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Holy Father, Holy Son. Oh, we hurry through these stories. We're moved, we're blessed for that split moment that we pause, but so much embedded in all four Gospels. And dear God, in this Gospel, you, you, you are as clear as you can divinely and humanly be. It's done. Salvation, the work of my gift is accomplished. And so, Father, I pray for all of our hearts. There's this numinous sense that creeps up every now and then. Maybe, maybe I'm not secure. Maybe I, maybe I haven't done enough. Oh, Father, let the first word to our hearts be the last word from the fourth gospel. It is finished. Rest in me. The Sabbath now has come. Rest in a completed work and I will carry you with these nail scarred hands I will carry you across the last Jordan you'll be at peace you are safe for I am your Savior while every head is still bowed in prayer I, we, we, we can't hurry out of this worship hall without 
reaching out to the same Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you, would you like today in the presence of the witnessing universe to say, oh God, I step into that wide open nail-scarred embrace and I receive again from you the assurance it is finished. I receive by faith my Savior and His salvation. Today and today and today until Jesus comes. You want to step into that embrace? Stand to your feet and by standing to your feet you say, Jesus, please grant me your rest. Give to me your peace. Oh God, we stand. We stand before you. We're all yours. You are all ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, who is our abiding friend until he comes. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.